Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast that you would do if you had nothing better to do. Yeah. And this is our last episode of 2021. Because, well, with the holidays coming up and our sister Liz is going to be the guest host of the next one. And because of her schedule and stuff, our next one is going to drop January 3rd. Okay. And this one hopefully will get out on time, but maybe a little late because of logistics and internet issues. Internet sucks where I live and there shouldn't be any reason for it, especially with the amount of money we friggin' pay for it. I think the reason it sucks where you live is because you live in a high density population area and there's a lot of people who think they're wicked smart poaching off of other people's internet. So anyway, Jelaine Maxwell's trial which was episode 77. We didn't really do a whole Maxwell Epstein thing. It was more about her being found in New Hampshire. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I'm not going to update it till the trial's over. It's okay. about what you'd expect. Her victims telling their stories and the defense acting like they've got, you know, all these ulterior motives for talking about sexual abuse. Apparently there was an update to the Stephen Downs. I think it was just a motion to suppress. He was in court and they were evident. Yeah, there's all sorts of back and forth about the... And the poor man is huge. Not that it has anything to do with it. It was a main mini. We didn't do a full episode on that. He is an Auburn main man who went to college in Fairbanks, Alaska, and is accused of murdering um, Stephen while he was there there has been a lot of back and forth about the dna evidence and other things but i even looked on channel six's website and couldn't find the story and so i'll eventually have an update on that but basically it's been these court proceedings about the dna evidence and stuff since he was arrested in february 2019 so so you have an update okay so in episode 64 we did bonnie lee's long con robert blake's wife that was shot and he was acquitted for her murder robert on november 5th the owner of the restaurant they dined in that night and where she was shot. Vitello's, uh, Steve Restivo, he died. They were talking about how this murder in 2001, the murder Bonnie Lee Bakley um, brought his restaurant quite a bit of notoriety and business. At the time, he said, this is Steve Vitello, uh, Steve, Vitello Steve Restivo who was from Sicily. He and his brother started the restaurant. Mm. It was a popular restaurant. A lot of famous people besides Robert, like I guess Gary Marshall liked to dine there too. Mm. But he said, I'd rather that somebody would come here because they heard from a friend that it was a good place to eat and that my friend's wife was still alive and that he was in no trouble. Because he was friends with Gary Marshall, his restaurant was like in Pretty Woman and he was actually in some different shows he died from complications of lung cancer and COVID-19 now it makes me want the sad thing is makes you want Italian food yes that's kind of an update so we did want to talk about before I get to my thing the Taylor Swift Don McLean issue which is almost kind of a main topic because Don McLean lives in Camden Camden May he's lived there for years 40 50 years in fact when Mel Gibson another <laughs> wonderful person there was a movie he did the man man, man without, without a face. face yeah he stayed at Don McLean's house the mm-hmm. movie company I guess they wanted a I think it's a really nice house I'm and, sure um, it is yeah and I don't think Don McLean was going to be there at the time or something. And they wanted to rent it for like 20,000 a month or whatever. And Don McLean said, you don't 
need to pay me. You can just stay here. I don't need hmm, money. That's interesting. Yes. The thing about Taylor Swift is she does not own the rights to a lot of her songs. And she tried to buy them and some asshole guy owns them. He won't sell them to her. Those recordings she doesn't own, but she still owns the rights to the actual lyrics and so- the song itself. She can still re-record. So she has been doing that. She's been re-recording a bunch of older songs that this asshole guy owns the rights to. So there's one called All Too Well that came out in like 2012. Some of you might remember she had a relationship <laughs> with Jake Gyllenhaal hall that was like a three-month fling and that song is apparently about him and how their age difference which was a nine-year age difference it wasn't but anyways the newer version of it is over 10 minutes long and it became number one on the billboard whatever so it broke the record of the longest song number one which was don mcclain's american pie and that was in um he was number one in 1971 so she sent him flowers The interesting thing I thought, there was an article in the paper about how she sent him flowers and people were like, hey, he's an abuser, a wife abuser, and also just an asshole. And I haven't read anything about her, about Taylor Swift's response to that, but I'm sure she wasn't aware of the thing that I thought was ironic, I guess, although it didn't mention it in the article. When she re-released this song she had a little film with it like a 14 minute film that went with the song and it depicts a couple where the man is he's not abusive but he's coercively Mm -hmm. controlling he's being obviously an ass to the younger woman i thought that was an interesting irony that she sent don mcclain flowers i think if she had known what he was like i don't think she yeah she was probably familiar with the song and that's it Because aside from his domestic violence conviction against his ex-wife, Patricia, in 2016, which may have not gotten a lot of publicity outside of Maine, because it's not like everybody's talking about Don McLean all the time nowadays. It's like our generation knows who he is. And he makes the news in Maine because he lives here in Maine. But also in June, his daughter... Jackie did a lengthy interview with Rolling Stone where she talked about the coercive control throughout her childhood. And I won't go into a long thing. I'll put a link on our website with the links for this episode. He was very, very coercive controlling. She sings with a group. She's a professional musician and her latest album is a lot about the abuse and he was not physically abusive but there was a lot of coercive control and it's funny when you said about him letting Mel Gibson use his house one of the issues from her childhood is they weren't allowed to move anything in the house like the house had to be this perfect show place and one of the things she says is I've been drawn to books and documentaries about cults. And part of the reason is because I really see something familiar. It's this feeling that there's one person who is completely in charge and who's almost supernatural, who knows everything and who has all the answers and who is somehow in charge of the world. And you are constantly trying to please that person. And it's not that you just want to make them happy. It's that you feel like your survival depends on it. And that's kind of a definition of coercive control. And her mom in interviews, Patricia has also talked about that. Jackie dated a black guy in high school. She went to high school in Camden, Maine, and and Don exhibited some racism. And he was kind of a dick. 
he has two kids, her, ja- uh, Jackie and a brother. She has a brother, Wyatt. And the mother, I shouldn't laugh at this, but the mother says he'd go around the house and say things like, one of my children thinks they have a good singing voice, but they don't. I won't say which one, but and shit like that. Like he was very demeaning yeah. of her singing career. And he tells Rolling Stone like, well, I tried to help her, you know, professionally, but there were just no responses. He implies that it's because she doesn't have talent and shit. And, ass. you know, he's a total ass. And, and Rolling Stone does talk to him and he rationalizes a lot of does. it. But the thing is, you read that Rolling Stone article and despite Don McLean's denials of a lot of this stuff, his denials show yeah. that. It's funny because I was thinking about that, even though this is kind of unrelated, but I was reading a People magazine article with Lindsey Buckingham of um, Fleetwood Mac and why he left. It was supposedly like a pro article, you know, somebody interviewing him, you know, and all I came away with was like, what an asshole. I know they don't want him around. I mean, I like his songs. Some people. Same with Don McLean. I like his songs. Had Taylor Swift Googled him, which, and I'm not saying she should have, she had no reason to. All she was told is she broke this record and she sent him flowers. This stuff probably would have come up and she probably wouldn't have sent him those flowers. I would be interested in her reaction. But should I just get to my story since we have a... We have um, shitty internet again. I thought I'd do a little something different today and it's... It kind of goes back to our original five years ago idea that we would take something that was in the news and elaborate on it. And I think this one worked out really well. And one of the great things is I don't think I'll have to do a lot of updates like we sometimes (laughs) have to do when we do this. It is something people may have seen in the news, but I did a lot of research. It's not a real long story today, but the research did take me a long time. So I'd like to not to blow my own horn, but I do think I have more like compiled from different sources than other people who have done stuff on this. We always do. No offense. (laughs) Right. They don't listen to us anyway. Right. That's true. My sources for this story are cleveland.com, which is the website of the Cleveland Plain Dealer, the Boston Globe, old issues of the Cleveland Plain Dealer through newspapers.com, a 17-minute, pretty thorough report from 1986 by Cleveland TV reporter Bill McKay on WJW TV 8. I also got some information from a book by quote-unquote journalist James Renner about crimes in Cleveland called The Serial Killer's Apprentice. And and if you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time, you know how I feel about Renner. But I waited carefully, mostly used it for quotes. Hopefully they're accurate from other people. I also got some material from a 2019 episode of Lake Erie's Coldest Cases, an ID discovery with Renner as the host. <laughs> as much as I find him not very credible, I do use quotes from his material and I will source the stuff I got from him when I use it, which is something I've noticed while researching this that he doesn't always do. Yeah. Because he had stuff James. that he presented as original material. I always picture the actor Jeremy Renner who bugs mm, me. Shouldn't. Anyway, uh, another note, Lake Erie's Coolest Cases is a show I've long refused to watch even before I knew Renner was on it because of its description on an ID discovery, which says ominously named for its violent and unpredictable nature, Lake Erie, blah, blah, blah. And actually Lake Erie (laughs) is not eerie. Like, Ooh, it's eerie. It's from the Iroquois uh, native word. 
Aerial <laughs> honem, which means long tail, describing the shape of the lake. <laughs> and I just thought that was, see, that's how I am. Things that's so stupid. And I'm ready to start. Okay. Ted Conrad's 20th birthday was July 10th, 1969. And he had quite a celebration planned. That day, a Friday, he had lunch with his best friend from high school, Russell Metcalf. After his lunch break, he went back to his job as a vault teller at Society National Bank in downtown Cleveland with a big paper bag. He had stopped off to buy some stuff. He made sure his coworkers saw that in the bag was a carton of Marlboros and a big bottle of Canadian Club whiskey. A recipe for his birthday celebration later, he let people know. He took the bag into the vault with him. His supervisor was off that day, and none of his coworkers thought much of it. Hmm. When quitting time came at 4.30, he told the other coworker in the vault to go on ahead. He had some stuff to wrap up. When he left a few minutes later, several coworkers saw him with the bag. He chatted briefly with the security guard, the top of the bottle of whiskey visible at the top of the bag. He also talked to the chief of operations for, by some accounts, about 20 minutes as he casually held the bag in his arms. Then he took the bus home to Lakewood, a suburb of Cleveland, and got off on Clifton Boulevard where he shared an apartment with a high school friend, Bill O'Donnell. The last person who knew Conrad, who saw him that day, or for the rest of his life, was his landlady, who said he waved as he got into a cab at 726. He had one suitcase with him. He told his girlfriend, Kathleen, he was going to Erie, Pennsylvania, about a 90-minute drive away that weekend to watch his mother, a violinist with the Erie Philharmonic, play. But he actually went to Cleveland Hopkins International Airport, and by 8.30 p.m., he was in a plane taxiing down the runway to Washington National Airport, now Reagan National, in Washington, D.C., on Monday, when he didn't show up for work, his coworkers were alarmed. Ted never missed a day of work. He was never even late. He was a model employee with an important job, packaging money in the vault for all the branches of the bank. A bank spokesperson told a reporter from the Cleveland Plain Dealer later that week, At first we were worried, thinking that he was home alone and perhaps sick. We sent someone around there, and they discovered he hadn't been home. The bank even sent someone to his mother's house on Bonnie View Avenue in Lakewood. She told them she hadn't seen Ted for days. It was then we became worried, the bank spokesman said, as they should have been. <laughs> it turned out that Conrad had taken off with $215,000 from the bank's vault, worth $1.76 million today. Hmm. Hmm. The the stash in the bag that he'd made sure everyone earlier saw had that big bottle of whiskey and a carton of Marlboros, but underneath there was a foot-high stack of $1,500 bills, 1250s, and 250-20s. By Monday, Ted was long gone. At the time, no one knew that with only a few brief and early exceptions, Ted Conrad would not be heard of for the next 52 years. At first glance, Ted Conrad seemed to be an all-American boy. He was born in Denver, Colorado in 1949 to Edward and Ruth Beth Conrad. Edward, a native of St. Louis, was a World War II hero who served on three submarines and earned a bronze star with V for rescuing three survivors from a ditched B-29 off the coast of Japan. After the war, he worked as an officer for the Secretary of the Navy, including on the Atomic Energy Commission. 
Ted's mother, the former Ruthabeth Kruger, was a talented musician, a violin prodigy whose name was appearing in newspapers in her home state of South Dakota by the time she was seven years old, as she played both solos at local recitals and events and also accompanied adult musicians. By her mid-teens, she and her mother, who was also a musician, were living in Denver during the school year so Ruthabeth could take violin lessons from a master there. Her father, Theodore Kruger, was director of Black Hills National Forest, so he stayed behind. By her mid-teens, she was playing the violin across the country, getting press write-ups in the Boston Globe, the Denver Post, the St. Louis Dispatch, and other major newspapers. She was also appearing in the Society pages. If you're wondering if journalism has changed since 1940, yeah, it has. Take this example from the April 23rd, 1940 Boston Globe, with the headline, Dining and Dancing. Having a party at 10 Acres in Wayland, pretty post-deb Phyllis Forbes and fiancé Tudor Leland, whose wedding takes place a week from Saturday, Phyllis in a nice green wool jersey bound with matching grass grain, brother Alan Forbes Jr.'s polo injury kept him at the merry table for six. Sub-debutantes Marjorie Perry, Peggy Howard, and Martha Titus were among Marga Kent's guests at the party for young violinist Ruthabeth Kruger of Denver, Colorado. Her guests including Harborn Stewart, Gerard Fountain, John Beattie, and Craig Eater. So that's the kind of stuff that was in the society pages back then. Yes. It's not uh, significant necessarily to the story, but just shows. Anyway, two years later, Ruthabeth won a national scholarship to the prestigious Berkshire Music Center in Massachusetts for the summer, run by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. You may be more familiar with it now as Tanglewood. That fall, she was a student at Blackstone College in North Carolina, but National North Carolina newspaper noted Ruthabeth Kruger would be spending the fall and winter in Boston, studying with Boston Symphony Orchestra concertmaster Richard Bergen. In February 1943, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch announced her engagement to Edward Conrad, and in March of that year, the Denver Catholic Register announced their marriage on March 8th, hosted by her parents, who now lived in a Denver suburb. While her husband presumably went back to war, 19-year-old Ruthabeth continued to pursue a career in music. Ted was born July 10, 1949 in Denver, Ruthabeth and Edward's second child. The family lived in Washington, D.C., Key West, New Mexico, and Newport, Rhode Island because of Edward's Navy career, and Ruthabeth continued to play the violin in string quartets and symphonies, frequently still written up in local newspaper accounts until the couple divorced in 1958. By the early 1960s, Ruthabeth had married cellist Ray Marsh, and they were living in Lakewood, Ohio, and playing with the Airy Philharmonic, with Ruthabeth's kids, Kristen and Ted, and the two sons, Ruthabeth and Ray, had together. I'm not sure why I find Ruthabeth's career so interesting, but it is <laughs> to me. A child prodigy, she was an acclaimed and talented adult musician as well, yet none of this information appeared in any of the stories I read from then or from now about Ted Conrad and his bank heist. And an interesting side note that had nothing to do with what happened with Ted Conrad that I know of, but I still find it fascinating, was that 1969 was a bad year for Ruthabeth and Ray Marsh. At some point that year, and I couldn't find out it was before or after Ted's bank heist, they were playing with the Fort Wayne Philharmonic in Fort Wayne, Indiana, about three hours from Cleveland. These musicians, by the way, get around. They apparently play with other Philharmonics and stuff because they were with the Airy Philharmonic. While they were in Fort Wayne, $12,000 worth of antique string instruments were stolen from their car. Yeah. This included a 276-year-old Matthias Albani cello, 
a 200-year-old Gagliano violin, and a rare Hill Brothers violin bow. Police later found remnants of the instruments in a Fort Wayne apartment smashed and burned. A narrow strip remained of the cello, about one-fifth of the violin remained, and one-half of the bow. In February 1970, the Marshes gave the remains of the cello to Cincinnati research chemist Joseph Michaelman to help with what the Associated Press called his continuing research of the secrets of the Italian master violin makers. He's the one, according to the story, who discovered the secret recipe of the varnish on Stradivari violins that's responsible for their sound. Quote, Michaelman will make some experiments that wouldn't have been permitted if the violin had been intact. The AP reporter Dale Burgess wrote about the marshes giving the remnants of their destroyed instruments to him. Dale Burgess added, which should make the vandals feel just dandy, exclamation point. Despite the fact that Burgess calls the destruction of the instruments one of the most barbarous acts in Indiana in 1969, I can find no other information on it, not an article from when it happened or anything, which was frustrating. And this is looking on newspapers.com, by the way, as well as Googling, not just Googling. Anyway, there was no indication anywhere that Ted shared his mother and grandmother's musical talent. But Ted Conrad was considered a smart and genial kid. At Lakewood High School, he was on the student council and was president of the German club. He got what are referred to in newspapers as outstanding grades and was named to the National Honor Society. A couple stories remark he had an IQ of 135. But before you're impressed, the last time I had an official IQ test, which was decades ago, that's what I had. So take that for what you will. You're smart. Thank you. Cleveland.com, in a fairly snarky 2008 story, talked to Ted's former classmates, including Kathy Berkshire, who now leads the Lakewood, or at the time, led the Lakewood Chamber of Commerce, and in high school shared a locker with a girl Ted dated. She said he was popular, a really nice guy, but kept a low profile. Quote, He was very clean cut, very polite. Mm. He seemed like he had goals. Like when he graduated, he wanted to accomplish things. Oh, wow. After Ted graduated, he attended New England College in Henniker, New Hampshire, where his father, Ed Conrad, now retired from the Navy, was a political science professor. My old roommate, Scott's uncle, Dwight, was a professor there. I remember once years ago, dad, who taught some marketing class there in the early 80s, saying New England College was, quote, for the underachieving kids of overachieving parents. And I think very nice. What are some of our fans I think and I think he was quoting somebody else as saying that the college opened in 1946 to serve returning soldiers and take advantage of the GI Bill but by the time Ted went it was an enclave for well-to-do kids looking to dodge the draft yeah well there Ted was elected president of his freshman class but after a semester he went back home to Ohio well some reports remark on this quote-unquote unexplained return home I don't think there's necessarily any big conclusion to be drawn I think growing up in a big city outside Cleveland, you moved to central New Hampshire, especially back then. In 1970, it's probably quite a culture shock. Little right, town. it's in central New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. And it's just a few miles from where Jelaine Maxwell had her big secret hideout. Anyway, back in Ohio, he began attending Cuyahoga Community College. He had a couple low-paying jobs, one at a diner, one at a factory, before landing the job at Society National Bank, at the time the city's largest bank. He worked in its main branch on Public Square in downtown Cleveland. He got the job in January 1969. 
His job at the bank was vault teller, in charge of getting money out of the vault for the tellers in the bank, as well as packaging it for the banks and other branches. Meanwhile, he kept up at the community college, taking night classes. The bank was impressed with his potential. He showed a lot of promise, one bank official told the Cleveland Plain Dealer in a July 15, 1969 article. Uh, Can I just say, I worked at a bank in 1990, and there were mostly women working there. But anytime a guy worked there, they moved up the ranks extremely fast. If there was a guy teller there, unless they're totally incompetent, they would very quickly be the branch manager. And and it wasn't like like some person said, oh, we're going to hire this guy and move him up the ranks. You know, like he's somebody. No, it's just like, oh, he's a guy. He's really... Like many industries, including the newspaper industry, which I was in for almost 40 years there are things you can do with a penis oh yeah that you can't do if you don't have like magical things that's why men move up in the ranks just in case you were wondering same but, with men that are like nurses it, if you're a man in a predominantly female profession a lot of times it's funny you should mention that not to get on a tangent but i had to do an article for my freelance job about consumer finance in new hampshire and nurses in new hampshire with the same qualifications males make something like 25 percent more than female Mm -hmm. nurses with the same qualifications in new hampshire anyway sorry about our feminist rants the bank also liked his excellent references from prominent clevelanders according to cleveland.com writing this later, quote, every performance review hailed Conrad as well above average, and the young man was headed for the fast track, one banker said in 1969. And again, this is according to a more recent article from Cleveland.com, and I really wish I could find the articles that they got that from, because everything I could find in the Plain Dealers archives and on newspapers.com was much less rich in detail. I wonder if his mother and stepfather's positions as respected orchestra musicians and his father's stature helped him with his references and with the way people perceived him. It's weird. Everything I read both then and now barely touches on his parents and who they were. And no journalist talked to them or even tried to talk to them at the time of the bank heist. As far as I can see, the only mention in passing is that his mother lived in Lakewood and hadn't seen him for a few days. Anyway, the references with the bank bore out. For a while, at least, he was a model employee, an excellent employee who never missed a day of work. He was polite, respectful. Everybody at the bank liked him. Criminology expert Robert Davis tells Bill McKay of Channel 8, WJW in um, Cleveland in a 1986 story about the case that most white collar criminals before they commit their crime are quote clean as a whistle and they'll be hired for that reason. And that's like I said, before they commit the crime quote, they will not typically have a record. They will not be school dropouts. They will not be delinquents. They will not show up in juvenile court. They will not have any of these so-called indicators. Um, And I just want to say, I've seen in Cleveland.com, I think it was a reference to him as a college dropout. He didn't drop out of New England College. He left after a semester and came home and started attending Cuyahoga County Community College. So he wasn't a college dropout. The 1986 report points out that while most people think of crimes like these as something with a gun, robbery by definition is taken by force. So this wasn't a robbery. In 1984, Robberies accounted for $42 million in losses across the country, reported, while embezzlement, like what Ted did, and fraud accounted for $382 
million in losses. Mm. In 1985, robberies accounted for 46 million, while embezzlement accounted for 841 million. I worked for several big box companies, and they are definitely more concerned with employee theft than outside, right? Like shoplifters and stuff, right. because right. that's where they lose the money. So, right. In the first seven months of 1986, before this report was done, embezzlement and fraud was up to $892 million. Bill McKay, the reporter, said that new reporting laws probably accounted for the hike. A lot of banks and other businesses didn't report embezzlement and fraud because of the publicity issues, and new laws kind of forced them to. Banks then and now didn't want to air their dirty laundry. And I think that probably explains, too, that while Ted Conrad's embezzlement is touted as Cleveland's largest theft from a bank ever, it didn't really get a lot of press. Ted Conrad had an apartment in Lakewood with his roommate, Bill. He hung out and partied with some of his high school friends, and he had a girlfriend, Kathleen. Kathleen went to a different high school, so didn't know Ted from high school. But she later told quote-unquote journalist James Renner, that she and a friend were driving down the street and he walked by. Her friend said, oh my God, that's Ted Conrad. I heard he just broke up with his girlfriend. Kathleen told Renner, he was very handsome, you know? So we stopped. Anyway, he and I started dating. The relationship lasted until he stole the money, but it's not clear how long it had been going on before that. Mm. It's not clear when they started dating. Kathleen said she and Ted had fun. For instance, on Friday nights, the seafood restaurant next to his apartment would get him fresh shrimp, and they got into a routine where they get shrimp, champagne, and spend the night at his apartment. His friend, Russ Metcalf, 50 years later, told Renner that Ted Conrad was the best friend he ever had. Metcalf had a big family, and Conrad was over at the house a lot. Everyone in Metcalf's house loved Ted, Russ said. But Conrad also was beginning to be annoying to his friends. Cleveland.com wrote in 2008, Conrad began to fancy himself debonair. He'd show off his fluent French and his billiards prowess, which one friend described as tournament quality. And I've read in other places he'd annoy his friends with his fluent French. And my question is, why take that at face value? Maybe he didn't even know French. If they didn't know it, how would they know whether he was speaking fluent French or not? And I'm just pointing that out to show how easily people can be taken in. Not Maybe he did speak fluent French, I don't know. But the fact that people can be easily taken in is something that benefited Conrad both before he stole the money and likely in the decades after. Ted drove a two-seat MG sports car and drank Calvert Gin, apparently to model himself after Steve McQueen, the actor, because he'd also become obsessed with the McQueen movie, The Thomas Crown Affair. And this is the 1968 version, not the much worse 1999 Pierce Brosnan, Rene Russo version. The 1968 movie had McQueen and Faye Dunaway. And McQueen, a very wealthy bank employee, which seems an odd combination. I'd seen it years ago. I couldn't rewatch it without paying for it, and I wasn't going to pay for it. So, Mm. um, yeah. But anyway, McQueen pulls off an elaborate bank heist because he's bored and wants to see if he can do it. Kathleen, Ted's girlfriend, told Renner that Ted dragged her to see it twice in the summer of 1967. But since it didn't come out until the summer of 1968, it was either that summer or possibly 1969 because I checked the newspapers and it was still playing constantly throughout 1969 you're so diligent well no i'm just pointing out that renner had a lot of factual errors in his account 
Like I said, I'm not sure when Kathleen and Ted started dating. Anyway, he also went to see it frequently on his own. The U.S. Marshal Service later said he'd seen it at least half a dozen times. Kathleen said after he'd see it, he'd smoke a cigar and gush about the movie, replaying scenes and talking about how awesome it was. His roommate, Bill O'Donnell, told Cleveland.com in 2008, he always thought of himself as being like Steve McQueen in that movie. (laughs) Cleveland.com wrote that Conrad also by then was, quote, inexplicably fascinated with deception, unquote. I don't know why that's inexplicable. He seems like just the guy who would be fascinated by deception. (laughs) In fact, he started shoplifting just to show how easy stealing was, his friend said. And while many of his friends were shocked, shocked after the bank heist, Conrad hadn't made any secret about the fact he might do it. He often talked about how easy it would be to steal money from the bank and that if he did it on a Friday, he'd have a two-day head start. Russ Metcalf told James Renner in 2019 that the lack of security in the bank is where it all started, as far as he's concerned. Yes. Had talked about the lack of security all the time. Kathleen also told Renner that Conrad told friends at a party that a racetrack dropped its money off at the bank and it wasn't counted and the serial numbers weren't logged. That's the money he'd take, Ted told Kathleen. The later accounts never said that that's where the money came from. Neither Kathleen, nor Metcalf, nor any of his friends thought he was serious. At the time, I thought it was just talk, Metcalf said. You know, that was just Ted. (laughs) Uh, On the day of the heist, Ted told another friend, apparently not Metcalf, even though they'd had lunch together, that he was going to do it that day. The friend didn't believe him, he later told federal agents. Ted told Kathleen that that weekend he was going to see his mother in a concert in Erie and asked if she wanted to come over that Friday night before he left. Thank God I didn't, she told Renner years later. FBI agent Bill Hahn told Cleveland WJW-TV8's Bill McKay in 1986 that when Conrad left with that one suitcase, quote, he carried anything of substance, I guess, that meant anything, just a few shirts and clothes and so forth, and you can bet the $215,000. Oh, really? Yeah. Before he left town, he left some clues to throw the feds off the track, like hair dye and references to certain cities, Kathleen said. Ted was blonde, by the way, a very good-looking blonde, blue-eyed kid. So the hair dye presumably was for a darker hair color or something to throw the feds off. Renner writes, he was going to miss his best friend Rusty's wedding, so he also left behind a piece of paper stuck to his TV. Rusty, here's your present, the paper said so, on it. gee, a used TV? Great uh, well, wedding it, present for someone with two hundred and whatever thousand dollars Anyway, Renner wrote that, unfortunately, Kathleen in 2012, when he wrote this, couldn't remember Rusty's last name. I'm sure if Renner did a little digging, he would have found Russell Metcalf's name, but he was more interested in following up bizarre conspiracy theories, something that should surprise no one who's familiar with his work. (laughs) He spent a lot of time, for instance, trying to determine if a guy named Jeffrey Keith, who wrote a novelization of the case in 1978, was really actually Conrad. Renner seems really to hope this was the case. Keith was born the same year as Conrad, 1949, and when Renner visits him in prison, the guy has a checkered career that I won't go into here, Keith keeps dropping French phrases, which he also does in his novel, which Renner thinks, ooh, is just like 10 Conrad. Renner thinks his mugshot looks just like Conrad, age, you know, 20 years later, but it actually looks to me... Just like Boo Radley in the movie To Kill a Mockingbird. (laughs) So nothing like the handsome Ted Conrad, as far as I can see. 
Renner spends many pages of his book trying to nail down that Keith is really Conrad. Spoiler, he wasn't. (laughs) Okay. In fact, if Renner had looked into the Plain Dealer's archives, he would have found that when Keith wrote the book in 1978, he was an assistant chief deputy sheriff for Cuyahoga County and was holding book signings at local malls and places like the B. Dalton Bookstore in Cleveland. According to a 1979 article in the Plain Dealer, more than 4,000 copies of the book have been sold in the area, and Hollywood was talking to Keith about a movie deal, which I guess never happened. Renner also chases around a theory that Conrad could have been D.B. Cooper. Yeah, everybody's D.B. fucking Cooper. The guy who hijacked an airplane in November 1971 and jumped out over Washington State, lost forever. Maureen says, why, more than two years after he stole the money, would Conrad be doing something so desperate when the feds had absolutely no idea where he was? Renner also trots out his favorite conspiracy theory. Wait for it. That Conrad went up to Canada, apparently because he was, quote, fluent in French, and also to avoid the draft. But here's a clue. If he's a fugitive, I don't think he had to worry much about getting drafted. <laughs> That's true. But also... So wait, but- wait. No, no, I'm going to say oh, it. I'm going to okay, say it. Okay. okay. So yeah, he's up there living with Maura Murray. <laughs> Maybe he was going down to Henniker to visit his old college and saw Maura Murray outside of the road and killed her. For those of you who aren't <laughs> familiar, James Renner is obsessed with the Maura Murray case and has many, many theories about, and we've talked about that in past episodes, so I won't go into it now. Anyway, yeah. Conrad, despite how he's sometimes depicted, wasn't a particularly brilliant criminal and didn't really Mm. seem to do a lot to cover his tracks. If it was nowadays, he would have left a digital footprint so big he could drive a truck through it. But back in 1969, it was easy not to get caught. He did write many letters to friends back home in those first few weeks that were quickly snatched up by the FBI and U.S. Marshal Service. He wrote twice to Kathleen, the first of many letters, all of which were confiscated by the feds in the days after he left. In one letter, he tells her to burn the letters so the feds won't get the the postmarks. Of course, since the feds got the letters, that was a non-starter for him. One dated July 15th, so just a couple days after he left, was postmarked from Arlington, Virginia, mailed at what was then Washington International Airport. The next, dated July 17th, was postmarked from Inglewood, California, where Los Angeles Airport is. The FBI also got tapes Conrad made of his phone calls with Kathleen. It's not clear how, but he must have mailed them to her unless the TV8 story got it wrong and the FBI was tapping her phone. That makes sense to me. It does, although his voice is really clear and hers isn't. So it's possible he mailed, they were old reel-to-reel tapes, and it's possible he taped the phone calls and mailed them to her, but the TV report doesn't say. He told her he was going to libraries to read the papers, you know, like people did back then, and he said he did not wave to his landlady as he got into the cab the night he left. He told her he'd also researched how often the FBI caught people they were looking for, and he found out if you got a good head start, quote, they're not real good, unquote. (laughs) Something that would prove to be true. One time, shortly after he left, he called Kathleen up on the phone, but a bunch of friends were over. They all got on the phone and said hi to him. Hmm. In the first letter he mailed back, he says to Kathleen, love is the most terrible, wonderful thing in the world. I cherish and adore you, but I blew it all for a mere $219,000. Our love was worth 50 times that. Please, <laughs> d- 
please don't judge me too hard. While the TV8 report theorizes he's showing regret, and the TV8 report's good because it has some of these recordings and excerpts from letters on it. I'm wondering if it's just more being romantic and channeling the Thomas Crown affair. The final scene is Steve McQueen flying away as the insurance investigator, played by Faye Dunaway, who he fell in love with, who was tracking him, but he fell in love with, has rejected him. And he realizes, I guess, he'll be on the run, loveless forever. Steve McQueen shows his regret, by the way, by taking off his sunglasses while he's sitting there in his airplane seat and gazing ahead with manly stoicism. Ah, poor Steve. So my guess is that Ted Conrad wasn't really saying, you know... I don't think he regretted no. He'd Right, he'd rather have Kathleen than the money. But I think I, he probably missed her. And, I, yeah, I think yeah. he was getting a little homesick. Yeah. And, you know, this is a kid who was in New Hampshire for a semester and came home. So yeah. anyway, Ted Conrad, like many who construct elaborate plots, didn't think of everything. In fact, he made one major mistake. Pro tip, if you're going to embezzle from your employer, bone up on the law. Conrad was counting on a seven-year statute of limitations on the charges against him, and then presumably he thought he'd be back in Cleveland, apparently pick up where he left off, none the worse for wear, after having his adventures. Quote, I guess you've been through a lot because of me, he wrote to Kathleen. Sooner or later, I'll be found out. Maybe on that seventh year, we'll meet and fall in love. It's been seven days, so only six years, 358 (laughs) days to go. But in September 1969, he was indicted by a federal grand jury on embezzlement and making false bank record charges. Well, there's a seven-year statute of limitations on embezzlement. Once the person is indicted, that freezes the statute of limitations. The the statute of limitations, not to get into a whole law thing, and if we ever get Matt or ask a lawyer back, we can talk to us. The statute of limitations is on charging someone. So once they're indicted, Uh, it lasts uh, forever. So Conrad would either have to give himself up, facing about 10 years on each charge, or he'd be on the run for the rest of his life. In one of his final letters to a friend that fall, he said he'd undergone a drastic change in appearance. Although he may have known by then that the FBI was reading all his letters, and that could have been for their benefit, my guess is, and you'll see why later, that the drastic change in appearance probably just ended up growing out his clean-cut all-American boy haircut a little and getting a little stubble. After the indictment in September, none of his Cleveland friends ever heard from him again. Uh. Russ Metcalf in 2019 told James Renner, I think he did it just to show he could do it. Renner, with his trademark obtuseness, points, (laughs) points out that 50 years after the fact, Metcalf still loves his friend and wants to hang with him. Quote, that tells me Ted was genuinely a decent human being, Renner muses. Okay, I'm not saying that he wasn't, but what that tells me is a very young man had a very good friend who was quite a charmer and probably manipulative, and the friendship ended suddenly and shockingly, so it's kept in front of mind, frozen there in time, rather than one that fades away, like the friendship may have done had Ted just been doing his thing. Because his crime involved stealing from a bank, the FBI was on Conrad's case from the beginning. So was the U.S. Marshal Service, since he was a fugitive. Over Mm. the years, according to the reports, the two agencies squabbled over jurisdiction, which probably didn't help the investigation. Most stories about Conrad refer solely to the FBI, but I wonder how much of it was actually the Marshal Service 
As I said, at first, Conrad wrote home, and the FBI was able to track him, first to Washington, D.C., then to L.A. The FBI also questioned a friend of Conrad's who was stationed in Germany in the Army. The friend wrote to Kathleen about it. The guy hadn't seen Ted, and there was no indication that Ted ever went overseas, which would have required a passport and would have been much harder for him to accomplish. You didn't need a passport to get into Canada back then, but spoiler, he didn't go to Canada. In a search of Ted's apartment, the agents found the bottle of whiskey unopened, as well as a bank bag and other things they took into evidence. They were able to get his fingerprints off of some stuff in case they were needed. The 1986 TV8 story shows FBI agent Bill Hahn sitting at a desk among piles of boxes, presumably the case files. Han was assigned to the case in 1978 and started by going through all the piles of interviews with friends and family and the rest of the case file all over again. By that point, the investigation had stretched across the country from Hawaii and California to New England. Han said his predecessor had summarized what amounted to 12 volumes of investigation into a 60-page report for him. Hmm. Han also points out how much Conrad liked sports cars and racing, especially Porsche sports cars, and also was a big golf buff. McKay, the TV8 reporter, remarks this is what FBI calls life pattern activity, things that people do throughout life without being aware they have set life patterns. Keep this in mind, listeners. The FBI put wanted posters in magazines that catered to sports car and golf enthusiasts. While the full-page ads generated some tips, the show said, they didn't get the FBI any closer to Ted Conrad. The FBI even contacted Steve McQueen in case Conrad tried to get in touch with him. They just wanted a chance to meet Steve McQueen. Who didn't? I love Steve McQueen. Yes, he was huge. He's kind of a dickhead. He was a dick. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, the closest they ever got was in October 1969 when a couple from the Cleveland suburb Beachwood was vacationing in Honolulu. No, at the Princess Kialani Hotel, when a nice young man approached them. They talked for about 20 minutes, and the young man offered to buy them a drink. Apparently, in that short conversation, Ted Conrad, and that young man was (laughs) Conrad. That young man was me. (laughs) Conrad spilled a lot of information, like I said, in that 20-minute conversation, where his parents were from, that his parents were divorced, where his grandmother lived. The older man mentioned in passing that they were from Cleveland, and the young man suddenly got all squirrely and said, I better split now. Was there a reason why he approached them? or Just to just talk, like, just to chat, oh, okay. just because he was a friendly, you know. When the couple got home, they saw a photo of Ted in the paper. It's not clear where, since I couldn't find anything on newspapers.com or in the Plain Dealer's archives after the indictment about him. But anyway, the old guy said, that's the guy I met in Honolulu. He called the FBI and had a great memory for all the things the young man had said, things that were the same details as those of Ted Conrad's life. But by then, of course, Conrad was long gone from Honolulu. Deputy U.S. Marshal David Seiler told Renner 50 years later, we've been playing catch up ever since. No one was more driven to get Ted Conrad than U.S. Marshal John Elliott, who was stationed in Cleveland at the time of the bank heist. While Ted's friend Russ Metcalf thought the idea for robbing the bank came to Ted after he got the job there and saw how easy it would be, Elliot thought maybe Conrad got the job just so he could rob the bank. Remember, 
the Thomas Crown Affair came out in 1968. Ted started his job in January of 69. Ooh, yeah. John Elliott started investigating the case the day the theft was reported. Quote, I thought the FBI was going to catch him almost immediately, Elliott told Renner on Lake Erie Cold Cases. In the 2019 TV show with Renner, Elliot, in his late 70s by then, said he was stunned at the time that Conrad was never fingerprinted by the bank. But in another earlier interview with Elliot by someone else, he remarks that Conrad didn't have fingerprints on file because he didn't have a criminal record, and Elliot didn't seem too worked up about it. More on that later on the fingerprint thing. Conrad grew up near where the Elliot family lived, and they even the Elliots even went to the ice cream shop that Ted worked at. That bothered Mm, John. Yeah, I know. That between that and the Italian food from earlier. Mm. That bothered John Elliott, his son Peter, told Boston Globe reporter Emily Sweeney recently. Peter Elliott said his father took the crime personally. Quote, as a kid growing up, the only thing I ever heard was pass the mashed potatoes and Mm. where and when am I gonna get Conrad? He told Sweeney. The elder Elliot never stopped searching for Conrad. 50 years after the heist, he told Renner he was still thinking about him. We're going to get this guy one of these days. He's going to slip up and make a mistake, he said. Now, about those fingerprints. The 1986 TV8 story points out that when Conrad got his job at the bank, employees weren't fingerprinted or anything like that. By 1986, when the story aired, they were for bank and many other jobs. But it doesn't really matter. I don't get how the bank fingerprinting Conrad would have changed anything. The 1986 TV report also shoots holes in the theory that somehow the bank fingerprinting Conrad would have made a difference. They'd only come in handy if he committed another crime and they were matched to him, the report points out. In 1969, of course, that wasn't likely because all fingerprint comparison was done manually not by computer or anything. By 1986, when the TV report was aired, it was more possible to match fingerprints. In fact, the show shows the new fingerprint technology at the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. that takes cards with prints on them, runs them through the machine and scans them, then compares them with hundreds of thousands of prints on file. Reporter Bill McKay also points out that new laser technology allows latent prints to be lifted from old documents like auto titles. New computer-connected machines can match prints in other places, reporter McKay says. He says, the FBI believes that as these advances are made, the ring will tighten on the fugitive, and then they'll eventually get their man. But again, that's only if Conrad committed another crime and left his fingerprints and they were matched. Or in future world where everyone is fingerprinted in the world and then it's all in some giant connected database, which still hasn't happened in 2021. In any case, the FBI did get prints from his apartment, so why all the fuss about fingerprints? I think a lot of it is just more the focus on the lax security at the bank, because fingerprints certainly didn't bring them any closer to tracking down Ted Conrad. As I said, Russ Metcalf told Renner in 2019 that the lax security in the bank is where the whole idea started with Ted, as far as he's concerned. Mm -hmm. Ted talked about the lax security all the time. Russ added, it was hard losing him as a friend. More importantly, it was hard not knowing what happened. At the end of the TV8 report in 1986, the anchorman says... Teddy Conrad's caper seems to be a sad story of a young man who got reality and fantasy all mixed up and made the wrong choice. As recently as last year, the FBI got a tip that Conrad is alive, 
but perhaps the word alive is the wrong word to use. What sort of life is it spent looking over your shoulder or giving up all family and friends for good? And that's not McKay. That was the anchor man who introduced the report who said that. Mm. Criminologist Bill Davis on the TV8 show says that one of the ironic things about life on the run, though he says a lot of research hasn't been done on it, is that you have to live like a saint. Quote, you can't get drunk. You can't run a stoplight. You can't get a speeding ticket. Anytime you do anything to get ensnared with the official system, you've blown it. Seiler, the deputy U.S. marshal in 2019, told James Renner Conrad wanted to live this life from the movie he watched over and over, sports cars, money. He wanted that life, and he could have gone anywhere. He was just one of these guys. He just looked good. He looked the part. So he could find a job anywhere, and I'm sure he did. Well, Conrad's crime is the biggest bank embezzlement in Cleveland history, by many accounts, it didn't really generate a lot of press. After the first short articles, when it happened, there seems to be little on it in the Cleveland papers. Hmm. And again, this was newspapers.com and Cleveland Plain Dealer Archives, not just Googling. On July 12, 1979, a short article appeared in the Plain Dealer with the headline, No Clues in 10 Years to $215,000 Bank Theft. It quotes U.S. Attorney Harry E. Pickering saying, Five years ago, the FBI said, we have no idea where he is. I'm sure nothing has changed. (laughs) And that snarky January 2008 Plain Dealer story with the online headline, Theodore Conrad, the FBI has a long memory, 39 years long. The reporter, as I said, talks to Conrad's (laughs) high school classmates who say the FBI has been at every one of their reunions, including their 40th at the Around the Corner Saloon in Lakewood the previous August. FBI agent Scott Wilson tells reporter Jim Nichols that over the years, all 56 of the FBI's field offices helped investigate and they've compiled enough interview notes and documentation to fill 20 binders. Still, the story says the feds admit they've never even come close. The conclusion in 1974 and 1979, so, was the same as it was in 2008. Quote, it remains a mystery, Wilson said in 2008. Certainly, he covered his tracks quite well. In 2008, 18 years after his retirement, U.S. Marshal John Elliott still kept computerized case files at his fingertips and admitted to the Cleveland Plain Dealer that the case graded at him, quote, Mm. one of the reasons I stayed after this guy is that some people thought he was some kind of hero or Robin Hood. He's not, said Elliott, who at the time was 71. He was nothing but a thief, a young, smart-ass thief who managed to elude law enforcement for all these years. Hopefully, we can bring him to justice soon. Mm-hmm. Bill McKay in the 1986 TV report says that new technology, quote, will make the flight of the fugitive even more risky. Little did they know back then, huh? But it wasn't advanced fingerprint technology that they were talking about in 1986 or today's go to DNA testing, which was just beginning to creep into consciousness back then, 3,000 miles away in England in the mid 80s. No, it was simpler than that, much simpler. While Elliot and multiple FBI agents were banging around the U.S., filling voluminous files in their fruitless search for Ted Conrad, Thomas Randell was playing golf, selling cars, and living life as a well-liked suburban husband and dad in the Boston, Massachusetts area. Randell first surfaced in Massachusetts in 1970 when he applied for and got a Social Security card. Hmm. 
as much as I'd like to draw out the drama, I'd be insulting your intelligence if I didn't <laughs> say right out, yes, he was Ted Conrad. <laughs> and that man was... <laughs> <laughs> None of the recent articles about this have even speculated or mentioned how Ted came up with his new identity. In Renner's 2012 book, Kathleen, Ted's girlfriend mentions that when she got her social security guard, she told Ted how easy it was. She just went to the Department of Vital Statistics, pointed to her birth certificate, asked for a copy of it, and that's all you needed for a social security card. They didn't ask for ID or anything. Hmm. So, theoretically, Ted could have stolen the identity of a baby who died on July 10th, 1947, which was listed as Thomas Randell's birthday, which is two years earlier, same date, but two years earlier than Ted's. Or, oh. because Randell is an odd last name, one that doesn't come up hardly at all if you search it online, it's possible Ted or someone he paid forged a birth certificate, slightly changing someone's name. I mean, he had the that money. makes sense. We'll likely never know. It's fitting that Ted was drawn to the Boston area. That's where the Thomas Crown Affair was filmed. Ah, that's right. The movie screenplay was by Boston lawyer Alan Trustman, and the website movielocations.com says it's one of the first films to be made entirely around Boston. Filming locations included the Financial District, the Mass Pike, Cambridge Cemetery, Beacon Hill, Belmont Country Club, the former Salem, New Hampshire Gliding Airport, which is now Campbell's Scottish Highlands Golf Course, where I once even played golf. Ooh. The Myopia Hunt Club, which is a very Tony um, equestrian place. Crane Beach, Nipswich, and Cops Hill Burial Ground in the North End. I just went by that. I, I, I was going to ask you if you were there yesterday. Many of these locations are swanky. Others are historic. As an aside, I want to say if you want a true feeling for 1960s, 70s, gritty Boston, check out The Friends of Eddie Coyle with Robert Mitchum. While it won't make anyone Ooh. aspire to be the kind of criminal Mitchum portrays in the movie. I love Robert Mitchum, though. It really captures Boston, and those familiar will get a kick out of him way up in the high seats at a Bruins game at the old Boston Garden, drunken, drunkenly yelling, number four, Bobby Orr! <laughs> and I was just telling Hannah about Bobby Orr yesterday, because... Did we, you see the statue by yes, the garden? Yes, because we took the train and it comes in at, at North Station. At, at right. right. Boston. But I digress. Yeah. Thomas Randell's driver's license from 1978 with an address in the South Shore town of Pembroke, Mass, shows a good-looking young man with a big smile showing perfect white teeth, the less clean-cut and with some before-its-time manly stubble. He does have the same blonde hair and a fashionably longish hip late 70s hairdo. He looks like a movie star. Tom got a job Ooh. as a stint pro and teaching pro at Pembroke Country Club. And in the off season, he played on the professional winter golf tour in Florida. For those of you not familiar, wow. this isn't the big PGA tour you see on TV, but the small pro tour that golf pros from all over the country play in to pick up a few bucks and work on their game. Eventually, Randall became managing pro at the Pembroke Country Club, working there full time. So it looks like all those pricey ads the FBI took out in golf magazines didn't spark anyone's suspicion. But why would they? This was Tom Randell, not Ted Conrad. Tom was a well-liked golf pro who didn't seem like he had anything to hide. And it just shows people aren't going to think, oh, this guy is that guy, right? Unless they're suspicious people right. like us. Right. At some point, Randell shifted from playing golf to selling, you guessed it, luxury sports cars, a job he held for 40 years at Woburn Foreign Motors. So oh, those oh high price ads in the luxury car magazines didn't pay off for the FBI either. Oh. 
Tom married Kathy Mahan in 1982, and the pair settled in Winfield, Mass., a well-to-do North Shore suburb of Boston. They lived in a little 1940s-era Cape, had one daughter, oh. Ashley. Kathy worked in the Linfield town office, and Tom continued with his car sales career. Hmm. He liked to cook, often experimenting with recipes and asking family members, mm. so can I make this one again? He loved watching cooking shows on TV, mm. but he was also a big fan of true crime shows. Oh, they yeah. had actually seen his heist portrayed on America's Most Wanted and Unsolved Mysteries. The family lived a relatively quiet life, and Tom, as the criminologist in the 1986 TV report predicted, kept his nose clean. In fact, he reportedly counted among his friends many law enforcement agents, including federal ones. The only bumps in the road were a cancer diagnosis for Kathy, which was featured in an online profile of several cancer survivors in a 2010 edition of the Salem News, and a bankruptcy filing by Tom in 2014. Bankruptcy. Asshole. Funny, a New York Times story on this said something like, the money ran out and he filed for bankruptcy, but I would guess the money ran out long before 2014. No shit. You know, duh. Another blogger who seems annoyed that Randell is portrayed as he sees it as a lovable rogue in the press, though I didn't get that from all the stuff I've read for this article, is annoyed that he perjured himself by signing his bankruptcy papers, legal documents, <laughs> Tom, Thomas Randell instead of Ted Conrad. I'm no lawyer, but I'm going to say he built up his debt under the name Thomas Randell, which he'd had for 34 years by the time he filed bankruptcy. So if you're going to be outraged, Actually, not 34 years, 44 years oh, yes. when he filed bankruptcy. So if you're going to be outraged, I'd say be outraged by something with a little more heft to it. I mean, the guy, a bigger legal fish. To fry. <laughs> no like he's going to sign Ted Conrad on his 2000. <laughs> anyway, in the 1986 TV report on Conrad, the law enforcement guys mentioned that people living on the lamb often keep some of the elements of their previous life or real identity. Tom did this including sticking to golf and sports cars, two of his big loves. Aside from changing his name and not breaking the law, he didn't seem to take any great pains to hide, traveling on the pro golf circuit in those early years, having jobs where he came into contact with a lot of people, including law enforcement agents who became his friends. Granted, once the internet came around, he probably kept his head down a little more. There's no indication he had a social media profile, and his name doesn't show up for anything online except his obit and stories after he was outed as Conrad. The federal agent in the 1986 TV report said he hoped Conrad would eventually turn himself in. <laughs> like, that why? Was, I know, in the 2019 Lake Erie Cold Cases show. James Renner in that show also said he figures that Conrad will either eventually turn himself in or someone would recognize him on TV. That show featured an age progression picture that didn't really look like the modern Tom Randell at all. There was one on the 1986 TV report that with a beard looked more like him, but nobody was watching that report. And it was at Cleveland. It was a local TV report, 1986. So not something a lot of people would see. In 2019, when Renner speculated on the two possibilities that he would turn himself in or that someone would recognize him, I'd say neither one was very likely. If he was going to turn himself in, he would have done it a long time before. By 2019, when that show was made, he'd been his post-bank heist persona for 50 years. He'd only been Ted Conrad for 20. Mm -hmm. And if someone was going to recognize him, it wasn't going to be all those years later. Another telling thing 
I couldn't find his mother's obit. She died in 1998, but I did find both his father's from 2003 and his grandmother's, his mother's mother from 1999. Neither mentioned Ted at all. That's weird. Neither has any mention of Ted, you know, not as a son, not as a grandson. I can't blame him. Right. So my guess is he probably occasionally Googled his family and he knew his old life was long gone. When you're not mentioned in your dad's obituary, you're not going to turn yourself in and go home. Right. And no one, like I said, was going to recognize him from the age progression stuff. No one in Linfield or anywhere else was going to go, gee, I've known Tom for decades, but he looks an awful lot like that age progression drawing of that 1969 Cleveland (laughs) bank embezzler, even though as far as I know, he's never even been to Cleveland. In May 2021, as Thomas Randell was dying of lung cancer, he told his family who he really was. He died on May 18th, 2021. And his obituary chronicled the life of Thomas Randell. His family kept his secret. But someone else was watching. John Mm -hmm. Elliott, the U.S. Marshal who'd never stopped searching for Conrad, had died in 2020. But his son, Peter, was also a U.S. Marshal in the Cleveland area. When his father retired 20 years earlier, the younger Elliott took up where his father left off. It's just like a movie. Yeah, I'm sure somebody will make a movie of this. Thomas Randell and Theodore Conrad, if you looked at Randell's obituary, had a lot in common. Elliot noticed this. They were both born in Denver on July 10th, though Randell in 1947 and Conrad in 1949. Their mother's name was Ruthabeth, and the maiden name was Kruger, and their father was named Edward. They both attended New England College. Like Conrad, Randell liked luxury sports cars and golf. Both were prominently mentioned in his obituary. Hmm. And it's that obituary that clued Elliot in to the possibility that Thomas Randell was Theodore Conrad. I asked Boston Globe reporter Emily Sweeney, who did a nice follow-up story on the case on November 29th, how Elliot saw the obit. She said she asked him and he wouldn't say. Hmm. Other news accounts also don't have what the connection was. My guess is that Elliot probably had a good old-fashioned Google notification set up for keywords, probably things like Ruthabeth Kruger, which is not a common name, exactly, and other items. Elliot, after that obituary, not before, as some accounts, though not Emily Sweeney's, have said, matched up a signature on Conrad's old New England college application that his father had saved to one of, on Randell's 2014 bankruptcy filing. While the names were different, the signatures were jarringly similar. <laughs> in early November, Elliot went to Linfield to talk to Randell's family. It was kind of weird, he told Sweeney, when your dad spent years being frustrated trying to find him, and then we're walking in the house and just sitting down and talking with his family. It was strange for me, but the best part is this really was a case that my father helped close. He said the family was reluctant at first to talk, but then told him about Randell's deathbed confession. Until that confession, they hadn't had a clue. Though they didn't go to authorities with the information, they won't be charged, Elliot said. Randell's wife, Kathy, in brief remarks to reporters who knocked on her door after this all came out in November, said he was a wonderful husband and father, and they're still grieving his loss these months after his death. On November 12th, the U.S. Marshal Service issued a news release announcing they'd closed the Ted Conrad case after 52 years. When Peter Elliott, John Elliott's son, signed the warrant closing the case, below his own signature, he wrote, on behalf of John K. Elliott, in honor of his father. 
Well, the U.S. Marshall press release said that, ironically, Conrad settled in the area that the Thomas Crown Fair was filmed in. I don't think it was ironic at all, or even coincidental, which is more likely what they meant rather than ironic. I think when he yes. landed when he landed in the Boston suburbs in 1970, I think that Ted Conrad was still looking to hold on to some vestige of his Thomas Crown fantasy. And I got to tell you, that movie uses all the bright and pretty places in yeah. the Boston area. Elliot, the U.S. Marshal, says he thinks Conrad regretted what he'd done in the end. Quote, the sad part is he's got a family and they're carrying his fictitious name, he said. Although I say, when you think about it, all names are fictitious. Yeah. You know, they all come from, I'm sure they'd rather have Something. Randell than, you know, Conrad, the um, criminal. The only mention at all in any report about this case over the last 52 years about what Conrad's parents had to say was when the FBI agent in the 1986 TV report reads off a case file from Ted Conrad's father, Ed, who says there's a disposition in society to glamorize the ability to do things of this sort and get away with it. But Ed adds, this is the heartbreaker of my life. Oh. And that's the story of Ted Conrad, the bank robber. That was stealer. a good story. And I had no, I didn't know anything about it. I read the Boston Globe, as you know, so it was there. And when I Googled, it seemed like it was all over the place, but I think it came and went pretty fast. And I would love to know more. Obviously, the feds would have been in a lot of contact with his parents over the years, thinking that he'd get back in touch, but you never, ever, ever, ever read anything about his parents anywhere which i think is um weird That's sad. and no wonder he didn't mention the obituary because it's like i'd still mention him I, granted no, i'm just saying i understand why they didn't though like i would hope that if my kid did something and went on the run that they'd still like at least try to say you know we don't know whether he did or not also i wonder you would think that they would have focused on the boston area given the whole thomas crown thing but at the time, the feds in Boston were all tied up with Whitey Bulger yeah. using him as a snitch and all that stuff. And I wonder how much attention they paid to it. Like when the guy says that all 56 of the FBI's field offices were involved, I wonder how superficial that involvement was. He had a different name, but he wasn't making himself hard to find. I know. And with a lot of the reports, they show his 1978 driver's license. It's just like that one I did of the rape guys right. that came to Maine. Especially that one guy that he was like right there in, uh, in the Gorham. I mean, right. for a year, for 30 years. And also, it again shows something we've talked about before, how people have criminals and the rest of us separated into two groups. Yeah. And it's very hard for people to see someone. And by all accounts, he was a charming guy. Yeah. that they're not going to see him. They're not going to make the connection. And I don't know. I didn't look to watch those old Unsolved Mysteries or America's Most Wanted. I don't know if they mentioned, like his mother's name, Ruth Beth Kruger, you know, her maiden name was a very uncommon name, but I don't know if they mentioned that on those shows. I don't yeah. know how much Tom Randall talked about his family yeah. from the past that people would have made a connection like how many people do you know where you know the name of their mother and her maiden name you know? I know oh i also went to to watch the thomas crown affair again but like i said it like it can get it on amazon prime for 3.99 and i wasn't gonna pay and I, even though i have hulu live if i wanted to get showtime to watch it it would cost extra and i'm like i'm not gonna pay extra just to see but my memory is, and I didn't really look it all up and everything, it doesn't end well for Steve McQueen. Yeah. And I think that 
Ted Conrad wasn't keeping that part in mind. He was seeing more the glamour the of glamour. the lifestyle. But again, he was a 20-year-old kid, and I think he got caught up in something and wasn't really thinking I, uh, about what would happen. I'll also say, though, the lack of security, like when I worked at a bank that was a lot more secure, and that was 30 years later, or 20 years later, I worked in 1991, right. 1990. It was 1990. But just the fact you you couldn't bring anything into the vault with you. There's no way, much less a bag. I mean, even if there was stuff in it. And I know that his supervisor wasn't there and his coworkers were just kind of like, oh, oh. Yeah. but I mean, stuff like that did happen. Like things were just so things were lax. Right. Right. And, and I think his personality let him get away yes, with a lot exactly. too. The fact that he stood there holding the money in a bag in his hand and talked to the that security was guard. Part of the, uh, the thrill. Because yeah. he thought he was in a movie and, you know, but yeah, I thought it was an interesting story. Yes, the more I delved in, and- yeah, I went down a lot of rabbit holes trying to find information and I would love to know more. I would love, have loved, I became really interested in his mother. Um, I'm not sure why. And I would love to know more about her reaction. And I just think it's interesting that this kid who stole this money was the son of a fairly prominent and accomplished musician who played in the philharmonic and his stepfather uh, you know his father was this world war ii war hero and none of the stories that i could find at the time said he's the son of these i know people Not or anything but background. i think they were protected by a lot of people yeah you know and I, may have i mean it kind of ruins your reputation to mm. have your son be a freaking bank robber well not yes. a robber but a yeah. bank embezzler well his mother and stepfather moved shortly after that to north carolina while they moved to new york which isn't too far from where they lived in cleveland like western new york the chautauqua area and then they moved to north carolina and his father lived in the dc area so it's like nobody was hanging around cleveland but anyway so you have a recommendation yes i do But before you start, I want to say, you know, how we've talked about the past couple episodes, the Milliken Bechdel ranking, yes. which won't apply. I think you're doing something nonfiction no. today, right? But I just want to say, I'm going to put a, a little checklist for that on our website. Okay. And, and that when we do fictional things, we can say whether they, yeah, how they you know, we don't have that. to go through it like we do with the NNW, but we can say how they we rate. just mention it. Because yeah. nothing, like I'm watching the Midsummer Murders again. I have yet to have one where there's a conversation between two women that oh. is about I And I haven't wa- been watching much because I've been doing s- some stuff around the house way during the kitchen. But when I do, right. yeah. I get into it i'm gonna have I, I could probably list on less than one hand the things i've watched in the last month that have a that have a conversation between two women at all okay mine's on a podcast that you recommended to me and i binged it pretty much this week it's a wondery podcast called suspect and it's uh matthew Shearer, the uh host and reporter i don't want to give too much away but it's about a murder that happens in a apartment complex it's in redmond washington it happened in 2008 the whole complex had a lot of young people and they decided to have a halloween party you know everyone's apartment kind of an open house type of thing and a a woman a young woman arpina she gets murdered so it's about that 
the whole investigation and stuff that happens. And we'll talk about a little bit after, but I don't want to give a lot away because it's very good. Listen, bad reenactments. No, they don't have any reenactments. Narrative cliches. I'm taking a half a point off, even Mm. though it's not for the host. It's two different people say it was a true whodunit. And true whodunit is one of my things that I get so sick of hearing on every TV show. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't have to put it in. Racial gender, no. Arpina is Indian. She came to the United States as a college graduate to work for as a tech engineer, some tech thing. So as far as the story goes, there isn't. I mean, as far as the storytelling part goes, I mean, in the story itself. Lack of good visuals, no, because it's audio, but I usually say, what are the audio like? And the audio is pretty good, but I will say I was listening to some of it in the car and I'm going to take off. Actually, I'm going to take a a point off because I found that, and I don't know if this goes in audio or missing pieces or whatever, but I'll just take the point off here. There's a lot of times when he's talking to somebody, interviewing somebody and you can't always understand what they're saying because it's it's not the same level of volume. They're muffled or they've got a mask on, which he does mention they sound muffled because they have a mask. But I couldn't hear some of the words that some of the people were saying unless they turned it way up. And I think that he needed to reiterate what they said after they said it when it's yes. not as good quality. Taking a point off for that. Missing pieces. No. Inaccuracy, anachronisms. No, not that I know of. Uh, storytelling. I'm not taking any points. I thought it was very well told. You understand what happened. He explained who everybody was. You know, he started with telling the story, then he goes back and flushes it out, but it's not repetitive. It's just adding more to the story. So you really have a good idea of what was going on and how things are happening. Can I say too, one of the things that impressed me the most about that podcast is that he lets the story of the racism and also, and I won't give it many spoilers here or anything, but what happens on the jury and everything mm-hmm. unfold. And for instance, I'm listening to another podcast right now. It's also by journalists about another crime where it has, which I get really annoyed at with a lot of podcasts, this kind of sense of wonder and naivety about things to do with crimes where they take a lot of stuff at face value. And I think particularly when he's dealing with the race stuff and with how the jury works and what happened on the jury stuff, he does a really good job of taking for granted that his audience has some intelligence. And he doesn't put his two cents in. But he also delves into the complexities of racism and of poor jury work instead of Mm -hmm. just allowing somebody to say some shit and then leaving it like it's back right freshness i'm not taking any points i think it's fresh i hadn't heard about the case and actually he Mm -hmm. said that most people outside of washington state or even the seattle area wasn't like a well-publicized case repetition no Like I said, he goes back and kind of underlines things, but it's not like, oh, this again. Beating the drum, I took half a point off. I just felt like, I don't know why. No, I'm not going to take a point off. I'm going to leave it at eight and a half. Um, And I'm going to say it because I can't remember why I took half a point off. So it couldn't have been anything. It's very, very good. And you should listen to it. But also, I want to say that there's a 10th episode where a guy from, it's either his producer or a guy from another 
podcast that's coming up interviews Matthew Scherer. He asked him what was one of the most frustrating interview or something. There's a guy on the jury, and I don't want to give away too much about him. Jeff. But yeah, but you don't want to give it away because I can say it. It's named yeah, Jeff. That won't give anything away. Yeah. But he said that he really disagreed with the guy and thought he was showed the weakness of the jury system, which is what you and I said to each texted to each other. Mm-hmm. I said, he's everything, every bad thing about the jury system is in this person. And I thought that he does a good job in the podcast of not saying, God, this guy's sucks. right. But he does explain things like it's supposed to be the fucking evidence of that fucking crime. It doesn't matter if the person looks like a... And I've even said this before, I'm sure, even on this podcast, that if I were on a jury, the first thing I'd do when we got in the jury room and said, okay, let's make two columns on the whiteboard or whatever, put everything that's actual evidence in one column and everything that's just speculation and impression in the other. But one thing is if... I were doing an NNW on that. I would have taken away probably half a point for a missing piece that I felt very early on. One of the people who finds the body, the oh, dispatcher, yes. Oh, yes. the dispatcher says, like, is she breathing or whatever? And the guy goes, I don't know. I didn't get close to it. He doesn't yes, say her, even though he knows too. her. He doesn't. In fact, I even DM'd Matthew share about this. He, yes. he doesn't say her or something. And from the research I've done, on stuff that's considered kind of leakage. Most people would say her, but Uh, he's distancing himself from Arpina by calling her it. And and I'm not saying that means this guy did it or whatever. struck me. But what I'm saying is it struck me enough that it would have been nice to have heard somebody who's familiar with like forensic language stuff talk about the things this guy says And it kind of brings up the racism, like not to give too much, but this is a white guy. Yeah. The things he says and stuff that should have been paid more attention to. And I think that the nice thing about Matthew Scherer is that he allows, he lets like other people say our conclusions. Like one of the lawyers says, you know, the white guy, they were trying to prove him innocent, the cops. They were trying to find things that would show his innocence. The black guy, they were trying to find things that would show his guilt. And that's what's shown through the whole thing. He doesn't hit you over the head with. He lets you hear it. It's not just out of the mouths of people that believe that. It's the cops and stuff. Right. They say without even realizing it. Right. The other thing I wanted to say, the guy that I think is guilty or or might be guilty, one of the things that they were using as evidence of him being suspicious is that he took a long drive and he drove to Canadian border. And I'm like, I take long drives and drive almost to the Canadian. I did. Yeah. I don't think that's suspicious. See, I felt there were other things that guy did that were more suspicious about her being dead that they didn't talk about. And I also think because of there was evidence found in the dumpster and stuff because he lived in the apartment building, he could have easily have moved stuff. Not even in the dark of night, he could have just brought it to his apartment. They had a balcony that that both their apartments were joined by. But I often listen to things like that through the lens of being a mystery novelist. So I 
think of how it the plot is constructed yes. which may not be things other people i also thought it was funny the defense lawyer you know he's this like bulldog lawyer and everything but he said how before a case he locks himself in his office and has a good cry yeah, i know <laughs> i'm like do you really want to be saying that and, oh, but i'm gonna put that in my book oh anyways i highly recommend it it's probably wasn't a great case for the cops because there's all these people it's a party it could have been an outsider it could have been that the guy that i thought might have done it is just uh, you know why would an outsider put so much trouble into no, that's cleaning the one, that's what i was just gonna say yeah. the only reason i would not think that is that you wouldn't try to get you wouldn't give a shit you you do right you kill her and, and think he, it was someone i'm pretty sure it was that one guy and also matthew Shear, because i did dm him we had a little dm conversation yeah, he went to the universe yeah <laughs> He went to the University of Maine. He they loves just Maine. call it Maine. He went I to know. Maine. I know that too, <laughs> but I feel that our readers. Yes, may, our uh, yes, thank you. May not, because as you know, we have listeners all around the world. Yes, we do. In fact, people in the UK <laughs> seem to like us more than people in the United States. Well, I can't blame them. But anyway, speaking of stuff, I have to head out to New Hampshire. So have fun and drive careful. This episode is probably going to drop a day or two late, but our next one after that will be January 3rd with our sister Liz, our ever popular sister Liz, yes. who will bring us yet, an, as she visits from Oregon, bring us another mystery from the Northwest. But not this one. No, not this one. It would have been a good one for us to do, but Matthew Sherrod did a much better it. job than, than we ever would have. And you can follow us on all the social things if you like us give us a review drop us um two bucks or something on patreon yeah. we're gonna freshen up our merch in the new year right yeah i gotta and, do um, something and i still have to get a newsletter out to our supporters liz and i took some pictures at some oregon crime scenes and took some at some new hampshire ones but yeah. i haven't had time but i'm gonna get that out get the oh, website i wonder if i took pictures of the Louise Chaput one. Or have you- I did oh, when you Liz did. and okay. I went on our New Hampshire tour. Have a great holidays. Yes. Um, whatever you may celebrate, whether it's Festivus or anything else. And we'll see you in two- 2022, right? Yay. Happy New Year. Thanks for listening. Yep. Bye-bye. I'm sorry. I was just reading about Jake Gyllenhaal's response. He was mortified. That's too bad. Mortified about what? Taylor Swift song about him. Why He's such we? a private person, and then he goes out of his way to avoid drama. Fuck him. So having their three month fling dragged up in a song and hearing people gossip about it is a hard pill for him to. Well, that's what happens out. when you date somebody whose songs are all about her dating history. Last night they were watching that PBS. <laughs> Um, that folk singer they think is a show that that's an infomercial always plays (laughs) right which i have nothing against giving money to public broadcasting but i don't need to see that info and i'm like you guys isn't there anything else mom's like no there's and i'm like you pay like 200 bucks a month that <laughs> they like at 500 book. channels and then because i was in the kitchen working on the kitchen so then this pink floyd thing came out and oh I'm my like, god i'm like do you really want to watch pink floyd although it was that song i like learning to fly i like that song so mm. i made her turn to hgtv